Hello and welcome to Chutzpah. I'm your host, Adam Greenman. My days are spent as the CEO of the Jewish Alliance of Greater Rhode Island, an organization focused on building a stronger, more vibrant community here in the Ocean State. One of the joys of my job is getting to sit down with leaders throughout our Jewish community. I learned so much from the members of our community, and this podcast is an opportunity to bring our conversations and insights directly to you. Our guest today is Andrew Bramson, President and CEO of the College Crusade of Rhode Island. Andrew has always been passionate about serving his community while also turning an eye toward new horizons of innovation and leadership all over the world. He's not afraid of firsts for his organization and for his own style of leadership. I'm thrilled to have Andrew with us on Chutzpah to talk about the power of change and leadership in the nonprofit field. If you're a Chutzpah fan, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us and review us on Spotify. And as always, if you have a lightning round question you think we should ask our guests, or you just want to provide us with some feedback on the show, please email us at chutzpah at jewishalliancri.org. And now, today's episode of Chutzpah. My good friend, Andrew Bramson, who's the president and CEO of the College Crusade of Rhode Island. Uh, Andrew will talk a little bit about that organization soon, but uh, Andrew is somebody who I consider both a friend, a mentor, a colleague. So Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Adam. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, so why don't we get started? Uh, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Wow. So uh, my upbringing, I, uh, I was born in, in Framingham, Massachusetts, so grew up in what was, is now considered the Metro West area, but was back then just considered the, the suburbs of Boston, um, in a real Jewish home and in a real Jewish community. Um, Framingham was one of the first and probably maybe the only communities in Massachusetts where you got two days off for Rosh Hashanah and a day off for Yom Kippur, which and this was in the 70s. And so that was sort of groundbreaking. And, you know, it's sort of a weird reference, but it's, it, it is an indication of how Jewish a community was. Um, I, I went to public school my whole life, but for, you know, to have that type of setting um, was a very sort of there was a, a, an overlap between the Jewish and the secular world in, in the upbringing that I, that I had. Um, was a member of Temple Beth Am my whole life, very active member of Nifty and youth group, and uh, had a very uh, normal suburban uh, upbringing. That's great. And uh, you talked a little bit about how, you know, member of a synagogue, part of some youth groups. Um, how did Judaism sort of play a role in your upbringing, how, you know, speak a little bit more about that. Sure. So uh, from a very early age, so uh, my uncle uh, is a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Bernard Melman, who was the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Boston starting mm -hmm. in 1978. So we've always had a rabbi in our family. And so therefore, um, sort of had what I would consider to be an inside track on Judaism by virtue of having uh, not only somebody who is a rabbi, but is considered um a, a real a real scholar in, in in the world and so in terms of high holidays and pace passover and all different types of life cycle events he was always really present in in, in our lives um my uncle bernard rabbi melman was extraordinarily instrumental in the relocation of soviet jews mm. from the soviet you know from the soviet union and went there on many trips in the 1980s worked very closely with then Senator Ted Kennedy to uh, bring Soviet Jews out 
And so as a result, that sort of formed a lot of my Jewish identity. I, I, was, I was eight or nine. I was programming digital watches for him where that was holding. It was like out of spy stuff it, uh, with addresses and phone numbers. And he would go to cities that, you know, I've now since been to as a traveler to, to, to Minsk, to Tashkent, to all of these places. And uh, so this whole identity of uh, Jews on the other side of the world striving to for their freedom, striving to come here and then coming here and then our family working to help resettle these families was, was really a, 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 a central moment in sort of my, my Jewish identity growing up. That's incredible. What a great, what a great story and, and just... Uh, I'm getting uh, goosebumps just from from that. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, tell me about the College Crusade. How do you uh, describe it when you're at a cocktail party? What's a cocktail party? Right. I mean, it's been a few years, but uh, you know, when we have them again, how would you describe the College Absolutely. Crusade? Absolutely. So uh, the College Crusade of Rhode Island is uh, the state's largest college access and success program. We have a wonderful mission. We inspire and prepare young people to become the first in their families to go to college. And you'll, you'll, you, you, I'm never, I shouldn't say I'm never, um, it's amazing how many people in their families are first generation to go to college and how when you tell somebody, you know, we help young people become the first in their families to go to college, how often I am greeted with the, oh, I was the first in my family to go to college and how people say it with, with such pride and, and such conviction. And so uh, we work with about 4,000 students a year wow. from middle school all the way through high school. So students join our program. We're predominantly an after-school program where we work with students who go to school, obviously middle school, high school, throughout the day, and then they can participate in after-school programs with us, programs on the weekends, programs during the summer, during school vacation. And we work with them from an academic perspective, from a leadership development perspective, from a career education perspective, and obviously helping them figure out what the right college is for them. So this is obviously a very busy time of year for us right now with financial aid forms and college essays and applications. And um, we are, not everybody goes to college. We know that college may not necessarily be for everyone, but we are unapologetically pro-college advocate for college and for the students that we work with, we know the data is on our side that a four-year college degree is one of the best predictors to improve social and economic mobility in Rhode Island, which is really what we're trying to do. That's great. That's what a great mission. And so often we, this, uh, this year, have spoken to you know, company CEOs. So to talk to a nonprofit CEO, the, the mission focus is slightly, uh, well, not slightly, just different. So it's just a really deep and meaningful mission. Yeah, and it's obviously we're, we're education focused, but the beauty of the work that we do is anytime you pick up the front page of the Providence Journal, there is something tangentially related to what we're doing, whether it's around education, whether it's around workforce development, economic development, communities and neighborhoods. Um, we talk emphatically about the ripple effect that is created when somebody becomes the first in their family to go to college. And it really is a ripple effect because sometimes parents end up going, certainly siblings end up going. Mm -hmm. It is, and so everything that we do um, has this sort of amazing effect. We've been around for over 30 years. We have over 12,000 alumni. I never hesitate to go to a meeting 
and where I introduce myself, and I always say, how many, how many College Crusade alum are in the room? Because I'm never, I'm never embarrassed or I'm never disappointed because there's always at least one. Mm-hmm. And, and quite often there's more than one. And they look at each other and say, oh, I didn't know you were in the College Crusade. Oh, yeah, what year were you? Where did you go to school? And so um, every walk of life in this community, whether it's in education, business, medical, legal, whatever, we have leaders, politics, we have people working in leadership roles in the community, and they will say that the College Crusade played an important role in, in helping them become the people that they are today. That's great. And how long have you been leading the organization? Uh, it'll be five and a half years. So it, uh, as I sort of like to say from a leadership perspective, it's, it's, it, uh, it's long enough that uh, uh, if something's not going right right now, I ha- it's, it's my fault. <laughs> Got but it. it's been, I've been there five and a half years um, and uh, really sort of feeling like I'm hitting my stride right now. So, Andrew, was, was leadership always something you wanted to pursue? I don't know. That's an interesting question. It, I went to overnight camp, a Jewish overnight camp, okay. Camp Avoda um, in Middleborough, Mass. And my son goes there now. Um, and so it's a great experience because he has four... Um, kids in his bunk whose dads were in my bunk. So it's this incredible, you know, relationship and, you know, connection that I have with my son. But the reason why I say this is that um, Camp Avoda has a leadership trophy. And that is sort of the, you know, they have all-around camper and all-around athlete and tennis and sailing, and they have all of these awards. Um, but the, 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 the creme de la creme, the, the, the most important award of the year for a camper goes to the leadership. And so uh, I did not win leadership. I won all around camper. Um, but, you know, but I always consider, you know, leadership as, you know, from that context of, mm-hmm. you know, you're at a boys camp of 150 kids and, and the leadership of that camp, the camp that the, 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 consider you as a camper, as a leader. So it's always something that I've, that I've sort of aspired to do. Um, this is the first time being a CEO, this position. So I'm still sort of a rookie CEO, even though I've been there five years. It, uh, after working for you know 15 years, I was ready to sort of run something on my own. And uh, I love it. And I, I, love the, I love the pressure that comes with it. I love the... Uh, ability to be strategic and creative about it, and it's hard to imagine looking back. That's great. We'll talk about that pressure piece in a little bit. Uh, or actually, maybe we'll talk about it right now. Um, what are the most important decisions you make as the leader of the College Crusade, and and maybe talk a little bit about the pressure that comes with having to be the one who has to make those decisions? Sure. So, in some ways, the I don't. You know, there's obviously lots of pressure. We're a mission-driven organization, and the, there's such clarity within our mission. Our mission is to prepare and inspire young people to become the first in their families to attend and complete college. So every decision that we end up making sort of goes through that prism, whether it's around hiring or budget or program design or, or community relations. What's going to be... Um, the decision that is most important as it relates to the the executing of our mission. And sometimes it's A to B, and sometimes it has to go A to B to C, back to A, you know. And so it's, it's but it, I, I feel really fortunate, and I've only ever really worked in nonprofit settings. Um, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and then from there has pretty much for the last 20 plus years worked in nonprofit settings. So it's always been easy 
to have a mission as the guide star, the North Star for how I've crafted my, my leadership. Um, I'd always, I'm interested in talking to people who work in for-profit settings or in government settings or in much more political settings where, you know, there are, there can be competing North Stars. Mm -hmm. But for us, um, having the mission tends to be that, that North Star. We are, we're a human capital organization. You know, the, the extent that we have success with our students is because of our staff and the, and the relationships that they have with them. And so the decisions that I have to make as a leader, the pressure that I feel as a leader is you know, what is best for our staff. Because when our staff feel like they are doing the work that they have come to do when they are thriving, then that, that translates into success with, with our students. Thank you. Um, what are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make as uh, CEO of the College Crusade and what type of process have you used to, to make them? When I got to the organization, um, I was a first time CEO. I had inherited a, a senior staff of five that had had a combined 125 years of experience at the organization. So that was in daunting and intimidating. And, you know, I think what has really been a, a, a challenge to me is to figure out how much do you, what value do you put on institutional knowledge when it comes to running an organization? And when is it, when's the right time to, you know, apply that institutional knowledge? And when is it time to, figure out what is might be the new and the next for the organization. And not that those two things are, are polar opposite, but more often than not, those things are competing with one another. And so it has been, that has been one of the biggest challenges is to figure out how to leverage that, uh, that institutional knowledge, but also not feel like it is creating guardrails for what you want to accomplish as a leader. And uh, that has been the process that I have gone through. Um, there's, I'm a generalist in just in trade, but in training, you know, I'm running an education nonprofit, but I'm not an educator. I'm not a child advocate. I'm not, a, 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 you know, I love running nonprofit organ. I love running an organization. And so tr making sure that I am connecting with experts, whether it's from a content perspective to make sure that, you know, I am getting you know, gut checked on, hey, I'm thinking about doing this or I'm thinking about doing that. Um, you know, I say to my staff, um, especially the people that start on the first day, I say, I, I need you to do two things. I need you to tell me when I'm wrong and when I'm absolutely wrong. And to give staff that psychological safety, which is easier said than done. You can say, you know, I want you to be honest with me and I want you to tell me when I'm wrong. And um, that trust sort of just gets built over time and through experience, but sort of building that, that trying to build that psychological safety has been really essential in, 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 in becoming a leader in this, in this organization. I think it's the biggest lesson I learned uh, here. It's very easy to say, I trust you. I need you to tell me when I'm you know, jumping off a cliff and actually having people do that and building the trust and doing the legwork to, show people that you really mean it. You do want to know that. And, and that's really important to create that psychological safety piece. Um, and then when they push back, then you have to be willing to, to hold your tongue and listen because, you know, it's, uh, I, 
I'm a Jew, I love a debate, you know? And so everybody, you know, but not everybody feels that way and not everybody wants to engage in that way. And, you know, it's, I've had experiences with staff where, you know, I, I think we're debating and it turns out that they don't think that we're debating. And so when that happens, it's um, somebody thinks, well, now they're being, you know, not yelled at, but being directed to do something. And now all of a sudden it doesn't feel um, as iterative or as as back and forth as, as you wanted. And so you just have to sort of be really intentional about about how you how you sort of carry yourself. Words matter. Tone matters. Um, transparency matters. Can we go back to that piece you talked about when you first arrived at the organization, the institutional memory versus um, trying to find what's new and next? I think that's such a critical balance for leaders, no matter where you are in an organization, uh, and to find that balance between honoring the past but not letting the past stop you from moving forward. And I'm curious you can speak a little bit more about how you continue to think about that, how you thought about it when you first arrived and um, what that looks like to continue to revisit that over time. So this is a term that's that comes from the military, but I think it is uh, applicable to lots of, of, of settings where it says the two most incompetent people you'll ever meet are the person who precedes you and the person who succeeds you. And I can see, you know, we're, we're on a podcast, but I can see you're smiling. I think I've actually yeah. said this. To We've you talked about this before. Yeah. Um, and so um, you have to know that you have to navigate that, but you, you have to be really intentional about, you know, especially when you walk into an organization. What I learned and sometimes I learned the hard way was as soon as I was being critical of something that I observed, people who had been with the organization all, you know, for a long time took that per as a personal criticism. And, and it's understandable why they would. And so coming into a, to a new organization, if I, you know, when I do that again, I'm going to be much more thoughtful and careful about how I present that feedback, recognizing that when you come into an organization, you know, unless it's a startup, when you are making observations of what you are inheriting or seeing, that people will consider that a... a um, an indictment or uh, feedback on 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 their work, and so to be really careful and thoughtful about that—that's something that's really been helpful for me to know. Great, thank you for expanding upon that. I think it's one of the hardest things for any leader to do, especially leaders who come into an organization from the outside, as opposed to being sort of internally grown leadership who steps up. Um, it's just so hard to not come in and look around and see things different than you realized. Because I think even when you're applying for a job, you come in from the outside and you see a little bit, but you don't see everything. And so um, your eyes open up a little bit bigger once you're on the inside. Sure. Let me tell you a, a story about when I first started. In the first six months, it wasn't going well, which, you know, is not that uncommon. Right. And so I had a conversation with one of my senior staff members at the time. I said, mm, things really aren't going the way I thought they would. And and he said, well, you need to know something. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, when you interviewed with the board, they said it was down to two candidates. And the board went to the senior staff and said, you know, 
who should we hire? And the senior staff said to the board, you should hire Andrew. He'll change things the least. And so I didn't know that until six wow. months in, but that was the, the context under which I was brought in. And Adam, you and I have known each other for, for a few years. I don't think anybody would say hire Andrew, he'll change things the least. Not at all. And so it, um, I, I was grateful that that was communicated to me because it was sort of like, whoa. Um, but it does play down to the, the importance of sometimes there can be a lot of people can over rely on institutional knowledge. Sometimes there can be a little bit of self-preservation that you sort of need to recognize and navigate. Um, and so I've sort of had to work through that. But yeah, it's, it's when I heard, you know, hire Andrew, he'll change things the least. Um, as any type of leader in an organization, to that's a, that's a tough way to sort of come in. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough backdrop to come in under. Andrew, who's, who is or was somebody you look to as an example of good leadership and why? I don't know that I have an answer. Okay. Um, who for you? Give me an idea. Oh, nobody's throwing it back on me. Um, I... You know, this is a question that a lot of our guests have struggled to answer, and it ends up not being a single person, but either it's somebody who they know personally, or it's uh, an amalgam of leadership traits that they've seen exhibited in a whole lot of different places. Now that, now that I've bought myself two minutes here, the one person that I do think about, and this is not anybody that any of your listeners will know, you know, as I mentioned, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and right out of college, and I went to Hungary, um, which is not your typical Peace Corps destination. So the Peace Corps, right after the fall of communism, sent volunteers to East, Eastern European countries. It was, a, it was sort of Peace Corps Club Med. I lived in a city like Providence. I, this was in the, in the mid-90s. I had a refrigerator. I had cable TV. I had a washing machine. Uh, my 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 wife then girlfriend came and lived with me so i had a live-in girlfriend it was just a very but it was a great experience and we got a lot of work done my boss in the peace corps a woman by the name of andrea Derry, um really taught me a lot about um how to lead from a mission perspective and that's what the peace corps is all about i was working in doing environmental education and she taught me a lot about how to you know Obviously, the environment is, was the central focus of it, but it, again, it's about people and um, making sure that if you make a connection with people, or you, if you have that connection with people, you will be able to execute a mission a whole lot more effectively than if people felt, feel like they're being pulled along into that mission. And so I think about Andrea a lot when it comes to sort of figuring out how do I want to how do I want to build a team to make sure that we are executing the mission that we have at, at the College Crusade? Great. So what do you see as your most important job as a leader? My, the most important job that I see is for, for, for my colleague, first of all, to execute the mission and the strategy of the organization. That, you know, there are lots of organizations that and depending on the size of the organization, it's, it's much more common to have a chief strategy officer to have, you know, but, but as the leader of the organization, I feel like I'm ultimately responsible for strategy. And so figuring out 
what the, the compass of this organization should be, the direction that we should be going in is ultimately what, uh, what my role is. And, and I'm a futuristic person, so I love thinking about things in the future. I'm also really mindful of the fact that in our particular case, we are primarily driven by, by staff, by human capital. And so people need to feel a connection to me. They feel, need to feel a connection to the, to the mission. They need to feel that the work that they are doing is, is greatly valued. And so I spend a, I spend a whole lot more time doing what I would sort of consider pastoral care with staff than I ever would have thought I needed, you know, needed or wanted to do in order to create a, um, a camaraderie amongst, amongst staff. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like a couple of times a week, I'm probably talking to, you know, in the late afternoon, early evening, you know, four to six staff just calling, checking in on how things there are, both out, inside of work and outside of work. And, you know, when it, it, um, it's lonely at the top, you and I have talked about this, and just try to, you know, make that bridge, that, that pastoral connection with staff is a way for me to get to sort of reduce that, 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 that loneliness gap that, that, that sort of exists. And so I work really, really hard with, with that and really striving every day to become a better listener to become a more active listener, to become a kind of listener who can be both persuaded and persuadable and really empowering my staff to come to me and say, listen, I know you didn't ask me for this idea, but I, I got one and I wanna share it with you. To me, when that happens, that feels like that's a great day. Yeah, yeah. Rabbi Sarah Mack was on this podcast a few episodes back and we talked a lot about the rabbinical training and the pastoral training that rabbis get as part of their schooling and how useful that could be for leadership in general, because I, I find the same thing that that, you know, those conversations with staff are sometimes the most important uh, work that you do on any given day. Yeah. And I would say being around rabbis my whole life and being connected to my Jewish community, um, in the way that I have been really probably by extension, I feel like I have gotten some of that pastoral training, you know, I, I sort of audited the class, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so um, I think that that has been really helpful for me and in trying to become the leader that I want to be. Andrew, what advice would you give to someone looking to lead at any level? Because we talk a lot here about the importance of, building leadership and growing leadership and, and that you can be a leader no matter where you are in an organization. And I would suspect in an organization like the College Crusade, there are so many opportunities for folks. And so what advice would you give some of the folks either in your organization or more broadly uh, who are looking to become leaders or to lead? So I value new ideas greatly. And I let my team know that I, I really value those new ideas. But th the audience for those ideas only really comes when people have executed what they have already agreed to take on. And so we have been really intentional about goal setting and key, you know objectives and key results and metrics and having those as a way to anchor 
um, what what work people are doing, and it's it and so it's trying to find that balance. You know, you can become a leader in whatever role you are by finding that balance of of both executing what you have, um, what you want to, what you have wanted to do, what you have agreed to do, what you have, what you think makes sense from a mission perspective, but really. For better or for worse, leadership tends to, leadership opportunities tend to come in form of what's the new and the next, and to really feel that, to really make sure that people feel like they have the license to think about the new and the next, and that's you know I'm, we're doing that across every level of the organization. One of the great things about the College Crusade is because we've been around for so long, we have. I'll, you know, as I said, 12,000 alumni. Um, we have advisors that work with students, 25 of them. And this year, about a quarter of those alum, uh, those staff are College Crusade alum. They went through the program. And another quarter are working in schools that they went to as students. And so it's sort of great for to sort of have have that connection. And it, and But it really is, you know, talking about, hey, you remember this experience that you had in, what do you, how would you want that experience to be the same or different going forward and really trying to to push people to to think be you know relish the experiences that they've had but but to think beyond them uh, going forward can you talk a little bit about the importance of risk taking in your role yes it um it's interesting because i i think of myself as a risk taker and especially during the pandemic, it has been really challenging to sort of figure out risk because it's one of these things where I feel like whether it's opening, whether it's closing, whether it's remote, whether all of these issues that we've all had to deal with. And unfortunately, people have short memories and people have short memories on the issues that you got, you've gotten right. And they have very long memories on the issues you've gotten wrong. And so it's, it, it felt like, you know, making decisions, I feel like I might have become a little bit more risk averse during the pandemic, because the consequences of getting things wrong, just feel that much more pronounced that much more acute. And so it, uh, it has been I think that, you know, you can do, you can make really good calculated decisions and weigh the risk. If you have, if, if, if your decisions are methodically planned out, if they are strategic, if you are consulting as many people as you possibly can, the, the, the place where, where risk puts you in peril is, I read this article and we're going to do this now, or, you know, I listened to this podcast, not this podcast, but I listened to a podcast (laughs) and we're going to, we're going to do this now. And so it is, you know, I am, I'm, I'm very keen on when I engage in a conversation with somebody on my team that involves risk, I will often say, you know, take no advice, including this. And, you know, to sort of, again, the, the importance of psychological safety it um, if you create that 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 venue, then you're doing yourself a favor when it comes to figuring out risk and you know when when to push the button and when not to. But it's getting harder. Mm. Say know? more about that. 
you know, we're working with hundreds and hundreds of students a week. We've had no cases of community transmission in our programs at all that we know of. We have protocols for, for staff that are working. Not that street, all streaks are made to be broken, but it's sort of like, you know, we've been doing this like we haven't had, we haven't had a case. 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 It, but, I, but I sort of know that, you know, the strategies that you and I used in April and May of 2020 probably won't be the strategies and can't be the strategies that we use in the, in the winter and spring of, 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 of 2022. Uh, last question before we get to the lightning round. What's the biggest lesson in leadership that you learned and how did you learn it? I tend to be a person, certainly in the in my leadership journey of, and this is, you know, not all Jews, but lots of Jews, you know, what's ever on my mind is on my tongue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have learned that you have, to, as the leader, it's very hard to put genies back in a bottle once they are out. And so... Even though you think as a leader, like, hey, I want to throw this idea out and I want to get people's reactions. Um, if people are afraid of that idea, if they're threatened by that idea, you can just say, hey, this is a crazy idea. Um, they won't take it as such. And so to be much more deliberative in, in, in how I communicate with, with people, um, much more intentional, um, that doesn't mean that... Um, that I am less communicative. You know, I think that there's a, this binary thing, which is like, you know, you don't want to give people difficult things to hear so you don't tell them. That's not the case. It's just being much more intentional about how you are communicating that information, to whom you are communicating that information. And if you do that, um, I think that that has been really helpful in my leadership journey. Um, it still happens all the time. It happened yesterday where, you know, I said something to somebody and, uh, you know, I'm driving home. Why did I say that? Like, well, like, I literally was like, you don't need to say this, Andrew. And then I said it. And, and so it, um, so that, that's, that happened. That still happens. That is not a, that's not a fail safe thing. That is a, that is a, an experience that just happens time over time. But uh, being much more intentional about that is something that I've really have focused on. Yeah. We're all works in progress. Absolutely. Um, well, Andrew Bramson, this has been a wonderful conversation. Are you ready for the lightning round? Born ready. All right, let's get into it. Uh, favorite Jewish food? Bagels. Favorite Jewish entertainer? Buddy Hackett. <laughs> favorite Jewish ritual or custom? Passover Seder. Bagel with locks or corned beef on rye? Both, but uh, bagel and locks first. Okay. My cardiologist would be proud. Uh, favorite Jewish holiday? Passover. Okay. Favorite Yiddish word you like to slide into conversations? Other than chutzpah? Uh, mishpocha. Uh, do you like your kugel sweet or savory? Uh, sweet. You already know the answer to this one, but Purim or Passover? Uh, Passover. I don't like costumes. If you could add one thing to the Seder plate, what would it be? If I could add one thing to a Seder plate? Tomato. Name one celebrity you want to do the horror with. Barack Obama, that's an easy one. And last question, how do you spell Hanukkah? The only correct way with a C-H and one K. 
second guest in a row who gave us the wrong answer. Oh, you, uh, are you going to tell me it's with an H and two Ks? But what did your predecessors, how did they spell it? The same way. Uh, but <laughs> so, so maybe that's why you spell it that way. Maybe. <laughs> well, Andrew Bramson, this has been a delight. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and uh, thanks for being our guest on Chutzpah. The pleasure has been mine, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Chutzpah, a Jewish Roadie Media production. Today's episode was made possible by the Jewish Alliance of Greater Rhode Island and was edited and produced by Emma Newberry. Each of our in-person interviews is recorded at the Residential Properties Limited Studio at the Dwyer's JCC. Special thanks to Andrew for his sense of humor and perspective. Tune in next time to hear from Jillian Friedman Fox of Newport Classical. In the meantime, you can follow us on Spotify and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Jewish Roadie's projects and hear more from our community, head to jewishroadie.com, where you can also find our social media. That's it for today. See you next time on Chutzpah.